Welcome, everyone. Today's podcast, we have Jeff Veen, design partner at True Ventures, visiting. And uh, I had a, a really good chat with him the last time uh, he came to visit us to tell us a little bit about what True Ventures is doing. And one of the interesting things that came up during that conversation was his deep passion about design and design-driven companies. And one of the things that he sort of walked me through I hadn't really appreciated was how much design partners in other funds can sometimes be relegated to just portfolio work. But his, his uh, mandate is not just to help companies that they invest in, but also to use that sort of design thinking um, in, in selecting companies. And, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that involves. And we've had other designers here on the show before, and you know we've covered some of the, the thinking behind design thinking, but I think we want to explore this in this episode a little bit more about what an investor who was a product and design guy looks for when they're interviewing with companies. So with that, Jeff, welcome. Thanks. It's really good to be here. And uh, we want to start off, as we always do, with what did you do in college and what did you do immediately after? Uh, well, I did not study design. I did not study technology at all in college. Um, my, uh, my major was history and journalism. I took uh, the two tracks um, with the intent of being a writer. Um, and just, you know, for full disclosure, this goes way back before the web um, a long time ago. Uh, but my goal was uh, eventually I thought I'd be a reporter at the New York Times. That was my career ambition. Wow. Yeah. So when I graduated, so in college, I was uh, doing a lot of freelance writing. And then when I graduated, I got a job at a newspaper um, and I worked there for a couple years um, and I became a uh, editor there. And uh, and that's almost sort of how I backed into uh, doing design because it was a smaller newspaper. So the editors of the newspaper also did the page layout. So I learned Cork Express and Photoshop and, and tools like that to be able to lay out. I had a Mac SE30 with a giant, like 19-inch uh, black and white, not even grayscale, black and white screen yeah. to lay out the newspaper. Um, and uh, and that sort of gave me my, my foundation in just the fundamentals of like page layout and typography and stuff like that. Learned it on the job, though. So interesting, interesting um, thought around creating a newspaper and creating all these different kinds of um, layouts mm-hmm. and in today's world you know there's tons of analytics behind what drives where what things are focused what things are not the big the size of the ad where yeah. it's placed and all these things how much of, of those analytics type thinking existed back when you were laying out and stuff it was no. just entirely gut feel or yeah was it? yeah absolutely I mean we had a pretty good sense of of the, so we were a weekly newspaper, yeah. uh, sort of like one of those community newspaper things. Yeah. Um, we uh, had a pretty good sense of what happened last week, and we would rank it in priority, and that would take the layout. The ads were sold per page, so what I would get um, at the beginning of the week was uh, a wireframe of what the newspaper would look like with the with the sold advertising blocked out already, and then I would have to pour the content into. To, and, to and fit around. That? How did they sell that advertising? Was it like the meetings like, with the client? And yeah, they would people say, I want the, this spot, or yeah, was people it? on the phone would, uh, you know, and and they would, they would, they would say, yeah, I want, I want page two, I want half a page on page two. So there you go, page two is half full now. So I would have to fill in around all of that, and then we had, you know, standing columns, the editorial page, and comics, and all that stuff. Uh, there were gaps left over. We'd fill them in with the priority of stories that we thought were important. And that's how it was done. Wow. Yeah. So what, the what the only do? metric was really circulation. And that was just a guess because you didn't know. Like, I sold one newspaper to you, and I don't know if somebody else read it or not, but yeah. that was it. 
Wow, you yeah. can't even, yeah, like all the things that we take for granted today, like virality factors and like, no, no, no. you know, what, what, what sharing equals. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, How many newspapers were left in the boxes at the end of the week? That was the about it, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so what, what happened afterwards then? Uh, so uh, I was also always sort of geeky into technology, but never enough to study it, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I'll date myself here. This was 92, 1992, I was yeah. working at the newspaper. Um, and I was on the, the internet at the mm-hmm. time, you know, gopher sites and FTP sites and mm-hmm. things like that. Then I kind of discovered this very, very early web with links and then the Mosaic browser. And I was just playing around with all this stuff. But I could already really see the connection of like, oh, the, bra- the graphical browser makes so much sense. Mm. Newspapers will be here. Um, and I was subscribed to an email mailing list from Wired Magazine. Mm. Uh, and one week, the newsletter came in and said, uh, we're looking for interns. And so here I had this job as an editor of a newspaper. I just applied for the internship. Nice. I, I was like, this feels like. And I was living, I was doing this in Santa Barbara, San Francisco, where the internship was just, you know, a four-hour drive north. I'm like, this, this has got to be where the future is heading. Uh, so I applied for the internship and, and got it. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and what was that like? Because, I mean, it was pre-wired being what it is today in some ways. Well, it was very popular. Like, this, this was the, they were about... Three quarters of the way through the first year of yeah. Wired, so nine months old was was a sensation. Like there, yeah. there were, you know, CNN news crews in the office all the time, uh, covering the uh, information superhighway. Like all of that stuff was really going on. Um, uh, this is yeah by now like about 1994. Yeah, uh, and we and uh, and we started working on a on a website that was going to be advertising driven and all of that. So yeah, so how, how long nuts. were you at Wired then? I was there for like six years. Six years. Yeah, from 94 to 2000. I left in 2000, yeah. So at, in 2000, I mean, this is kind of like at the peak of, of the dot-com world. And, you know, if you had to summarize your, your wired experience, especially culminating in, in such an interesting period, yeah. what, what were the sort of key lessons that, that you kind of look back and have shifted the way that you look at um, either investing or, or product design? Uh, sure. Yeah, there's a couple of things. Well, I think one of the fa- the fundamental things that I realized then is that, like in 1994, nobody knew anything about web design. Yeah. Um, so everything we figured out, we just shared. Yeah. Um, and we started a site called WebMonkey, which I think a lot of people sort of found very useful in that yeah. we were uncovering how browsers worked and how JavaScript worked, all that stuff. Yeah. So not holding on to what you've learned as proprietary, mm-hmm. but but instead using that as a way of frankly, establishing yourself as an expert or, or, uh, or whatever. Like I went on to write some books about it and, and do all that kind of stuff really informed later in my career, like never trying to just like, we'll hide this and keep it proprietary and we'll use that as our competitive advantage. Yeah. Um, that was part of it. Um, also the fact that just being really comfortable that I don't know anything and nobody else knows anything. We're all just figuring this out. Mm-hmm. Um, like decreases anxiety for me a lot, uh, at the end of the day. So, so that was part there's a couple of the things I learned there. All right, fair enough. I also learned, frankly, um, uh, the, there was the way in which we make products. Um, uh, I learned how to do that in an editorial environment, which I found really interesting. Not in a software company, but we did software development on an editorial schedule, which meant really high-paced, really iterative and rapid. Like you know, our magazine came out once a month, and they were doing like 200 pages back then. It was a really big magazine, so. Um, so there was a ship date by default. Like you got to go to the press 
and we did the website the exact same way. We followed these really rigid schedules and went really fast. Mm. Um, Do you still use that? Uh, well, yeah, we just call it Lean Startup now. Mm. So, sure, I um, when I work with teams, I, I make all of these artificial deadlines all the time as a as a way to focus product development so that we don't sort of run off the rails, you know? Um, we'll do things just like schedule uh, user research. Do some con- controversial testing. question here, controversial question. Yeah. A little jumping around here, but if, if you have that mentality and that mentality is something that you look for in the company, what do you reckon the role of an investor should be in either helping or shaping or policing that sort of ship schedule. Yeah, certainly not policing. I mean, um, I uh, one of the reasons that I've been just really fond of True. They were my investor, as we we'll we'll, we'll get to yeah. what I did later um, on the entrepreneurial side. But I, I selected True as my investor when I was financing my company for uh, simply because they're they're not they're so early stage and they're very much uh, entrepreneurial friendly and yeah. and I don't want to sound like an ad for them, but the, but it's a philosophy of. Yeah. Uh, we're there to be in alignment with the um, with the entrepreneur and not antagonistic against yeah. them. Um, and so, so part of it is like you know we're we've all been entrepreneurs. We can say like it seems like you're struggling here. Here's what I've done to help, as opposed to this thing has to ship by the end of the quarter or you're out of CEO. Yeah, we've never fired a CEO and stuff like that. So I think there's there's different approaches to it, and we just take a much more um, how, how do you- supportive. You know, in that support, there's spectrums, right? There's there's spectrums of discipline, and there's spectrums of kind of like, well, you know, I can empathize on the reason why this has slipped for the fifth time, and uh, you know, can you post it? Like, where where do where do you with sort of this background where you you know the importance of this scheduling and, mm-hmm. and putting these barriers? How, how do you how do you look? How do you manage that within a, a team that you're working with? Uh, it's never going to work. To try to uh, force the issue myself, like yeah. for for me to try to get in there and make it happen, yeah. like I just don't think that'll ever work. Uh, that I think is finding. If I were to find myself in that situation, would be reflective of like, why didn't I see this before? Yeah. Um, because this is the kind of thing I look for in an entrepreneur. Yeah. So um, either they completely fooled me, or I, mi- I entirely missed it, and, and that's never happened uh, thus far. Um, but no, I think. When, when I'm deciding on um, what kind of company we want to invest in, what kind of team, mm. looking for that sense of urgency and momentum and just, uh, they're, they're frustrated that, that they can't go faster. You yeah. know what I mean? Like that they don't, they, the, the, the desire to continuously improve on that process is something we look for right up front. Yeah, no, fair enough. And, and you know, I'll, I'll probably ask you the same question in some other form a little later, but I think what I'm trying to figure out is, you know, there's debates about how investors can add value and and you know with with anything that having to do with um, bringing on a pace and the question would be around how pace setting can be done at the investor level or if it's even appropriate for right. that you know because there is a budget there is um, milestones that are supposed to have been met you know and that's part of what the series A or series B fundraising yep. plan involves yep. and, and the investors money's on the line so yep. we'll, we'll revisit that sure. in a yep. second but um, going back to sort of where we left off, you know, you mentioned earlier that in 2000 you were at the sort of peak wired and, and you started working on a product that you were doing consultancy from what I understand. 
Yeah, I left Wired. Um, Wired actually got split into two, digital and, and, the, and the print magazine. Print magazine went off to Condé Nast. The digital part went off to Lycos, mm. uh, which was just a terrible place to work. Um, so I didn't last long there. Mm. Uh, and really wanted to get some more experience, more broad experience mm. in the industry. And so uh, with a few other friends started a consulting company called Adaptive Path mm-hmm. um, with the hopes of doing things like e-commerce and not just publishing and product development and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was hugely rewarding and really, really fun. Um, uh, I lasted about five years in the consulting part of things before I realized uh, that I missed doing uh, product development and sort of owning the product uh, as opposed to solving other people's problems. So um, I convinced my uh, partners at Adaptive Path that uh, we should build a product internally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is around the time when 37 Signals, who had many people I don't think remember, had been a consulting company, mm. a design agency. Um, and, uh, and they had built Basecamp as a way of managing projects with their, um, with their clients. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I said, we can do something like that. Right. So um, I built a product called uh, MeasureMap, which was an analytics tool for bloggers um, and got it pretty far along. Uh, got it to the point where we realized it's going to be quite expensive and we'd have to raise some money. Uh, it was a little complicated having a product inside of a, uh, a partnership, like owned that way. We're going to have to clean that up. Um, and then Google called us up and said, hey, interest, we're interested. And so we ended up doing an early acquisition with them. And that um, led uh, almost in a direct line to us uh, building and uh, designing Google Analytics. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the middle part there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an interesting transition, obviously going from uh, publishing and you know, the very origins being editorial and then later becoming a consultant solving other people's problems and then yeah. eventually getting around to building your own. And it doesn't seem like there's any, I'm not saying that you need formal training, but it doesn't seem like there was any kind of sort of design thinking. And to some extent, that might have been a blessing. I think it was. You're not being hindered by other people's sort of limitations. Right. But if you now, for the purposes of helping out, let's say, somebody who's perhaps going through the same sort of process, um, what were the things that, leading up to the Google acquisition, you could have said, if you were in the similar podcast, were the key decision points for design thinking? Like, what were the things that the, the ethoses or the, the the framework that you used that would help you sort of focus building this product? And then we'll talk about how that shifted during Google's time. Sure. Um, I think the notion of doing design from a user-centered perspective, mm-hmm. uh, doing user research both before you start the product and then after periodically as a way of validation. Mm-hmm. So doing everything from customer user interviews and um, uh, and that sort of stuff all the way through to usability and, and things like that. That was a um, kind of a radical idea in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. It certainly was a very... So, so we did a few very high-profile websites at Wired that failed. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody knew why. And, uh, and the notion, like we, uh, a couple of us raised this idea of like, what if we brought users from the outside in to have a look at the thing before it was ready and, and we could sort of course correct as we did it, mm-hmm. was met with, frankly, a lot of hostility. People were like, no, you don't. I mean, Wired Magazine has won all of these design awards mm-hmm. uh, and National Magazine awards and things like that. Uh, and we didn't get there by like, doing focus groups and, you know, um, and bringing, and the perception was that it would bring things down to this lowest common denominator and, uh, and it'd be just like we were selling soap, you know? Um, 
And and being able to 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 make the case and the argument that no, actually, this is this is about checking that the innovation that we're doing is actually something people can understand yeah. fundamentally. It's not we don't need their opinions on whether they like it or not. We do need to see if they can actually parse how the thing works. Mm-hmm. That was the, the the core principle, the the sort of atomic unit of starting Adaptive Path was we build a whole agency around this idea of user centered design, and. Um, and that, again, the back, back in those days really set us apart from all the other agencies that would, were much more like client services and uh, advertising type agencies that, were, uh, that would just provide what was in the, the RFP and yeah. give the work back and that would be the end of the relationship. Um, we, all the time, we would get calls where people would say, hey, I, I would love to have to come and do this usability that we've read about on our website. We'd come in and we'd do a round of usability and come back and say, yeah, uh, we tested the website and we found out that um, your business model is wrong. And they're like, well, that's not what we, what we hired you for. I thought you were just going to tell us you know, what buttons to fix and things like that. And we really quickly realized the strategic value of design all the way down in how the business is conceived and, uh, and things like that. So, um, so that was probably the big turning point at that point in my career. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it definitely, it's, it's obviously now a given, um, but it's interesting to hear how things were in, in yeah. those days. Now, when you when you moved into the Google uh, sort of analytics um, team mm-hmm. and perhaps spearheaded that process, what was Google's thinking of product design at that time? Like when, like if we do a timestamp of where that transition was coming from an outsider who's built products and has worked on yeah. many different things. So the moment you walked into Google, was that already within that or did you have to shape some of that culture or so, how did um, that play out? Yeah, it was really uh, almost, I don't know, bipolar for lack of a better word at Google at the time. So when I got there, it was um, a couple years after the IPO, Google was growing like crazy. Um, making tremendous amounts on search advertising and then starting all these new initiatives. So uh, Gmail was just out when I started working there. And then they started, oh, we'll add a calendar. Oh, we'll get docs and all that kind of stuff. Um, it was this, this period of rapid growth. Um, and it really represented almost two Googles. There was search and then there was everything else. And on everything else, there was a pretty kind of standard corporate uh, centralized design uh, user experience team, lots of user research, usability labs, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and search, there was Marissa Meyer, right? And that, and that was it. Like she, all decisions were made by her and went through her and she had those uh, now I think infamous design reviews or product reviews or whatever she called them. So for us, we had sort of free reign to design Google Analytics however we wanted to and I did. I based it all on just contextual inquiry with lots of uh, customers and really figured out what people needed from analytics tools and built that into a mental model and built everything on top of that did tons of usability testing. Um, but I had peers at Google who were designers who worked on the search side of things um, that were uh, treated, well, I, don't, I wouldn't say they were treated, but the, but the concept was designed as this little task that you do in this bigger set of engineering functions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, very difficult to be a designer at Google at the time uh, on that side of things. Uh, that didn't change until well after I had left in the sort of mandate from uh, when, when Larry took over as CEO and the mandate that everything would be uh, designed better and designed more consistently across the board. Um, 
uh, that was a multi-year process, and I didn't see much of that. I had left already. Mm. How long were you there for? Uh, almost three years. Three years. Two thousand five to two thousand eight. Yeah. yeah. And and what? How big was your team at the time? What? When we did Google Analytics, uh, it was a thirty or forty person team, but that was all the engineering too. And I um, uh, there was a, a director of engineering, Paul Murray, who I worked with very closely. The team that designed everything was just six of us. What, what, what advice do you give to a CEO or in this case kind of like a product manager on how to um, identify talent and how to manage talent for a design-centric organization? Hmm. That's, a, that's, a, that's a really good question. It's kind of, um, that's the number one question uh, I think over in Silicon Valley right now. Where do we find designers, right? There's clearly this huge hunger, this need for it um, that, that feels uh, kind of new. Um, and there's just not that many people with experience in the world for this kind of product design. Um, so I don't. I look uh, like any other kind of um, hiring. I look for analytical ability, the ability to communicate, good collaboration skills, all of those sorts of things. The craft itself. How good are you at um, you know arranging the pixels in a way that's uh, that makes sense? Uh, that's not at all my primary concern. Um, I certainly look for like warning signs that this person uh, uh, doesn't have good taste, but I think the good taste is something that we can cultivate as well. Mm. But then how do you manage that? So for example, you have a team of five or six people and in cases maybe even more, and they're all trying to to push their own personal opinions on things, right? Because I mean, in spite of the fact that you might have curated a group of people that have similar tastes, which I, you know, I can totally get. Um, especially for companies that already have a brand presence and yeah. therefore like they're attracting their own customer if you will yeah but in spite of that you still have like probably a level of incentivization for relatively um, uh, people who are intrinsically motivated by a desire to sort of do all these kinds of interesting things but that is facing opposition from like a project and limitations of that project and the budget of that project and you as a manager are trying to make that balance. How did you find that balance? How did you the, the, set the, up the flow? Yeah, the thing that worked for me was um, rising to a level of, of responsibility in an organization where I could have, uh, where I didn't just have a team of designers, but that I had the full sort of uh, interdisciplinary mix of people. Mm -hmm. um, so I would have developers, front-end developers, back-end developers, uh, uh, ops people, all of them, and then I considered that team a product team. Mm. So rather than um, you know a bunch of engineers are going to uh, get a set of requirements and build some code, and a bunch of designers are going to get some requirements and draw some pictures, we did all that together. Mm. So um, for me, it works the best when I have a small group of people that are uh, that really trust one another, mm -hmm. that have um, responsibility for, for all aspects of the production and and, and uh, uh, delivery of a product uh, and that we solve each problem from its inception together. So what that looks like are people in a room with a whiteboard uh, solving, all, solving all the problems that people would consider to be design problems. What are we trying to achieve? What's that going to look like? Does everybody agree? Okay, is, is that good? The designer will go off and do a high fidelity rendering of that while the engineers start to prototype and make it work and that and then we sort of keep coming back and iterating all of that what's that look like that keep coming back is that a weekly thing is that a stand up is it would be generally it depends on the pace of what we're working on a daily stand up that I do with everybody uh, weekly um, sort of brainstorming sessions and product reviews depending mm -hmm. on where we are uh, and then just real time in the in the chat 
all and the how, time. And how do you reconcile conflict when it comes to um, opinions that the engineer says, I can't do that, and the designer says, well, that's how it has to be. Like, how, do you rec- how do you build we, that? We, we just work through it. Yeah. It is just time in the room together. There's nothing you can't build, and there's no design you can't change. Yeah. Those two things are, are uh, true. means that we can find some middle ground here. Yeah. And um, then what, what are early symptoms of, of danger there? Like, what are the things that you're looking out for as sort of the manager of this team, thinking like, this either it's, it's going to result in late shipping or in, in sort of a product that's kind of clobbered together? What, what are the things, what are the warning signs that you would you recommend? Yeah, um, I am a very big proponent of just continuous momentum, right? right. So, um, so what's that, what that's meant to me is that um, uh, I refuse to, uh, you know, talk about good taste like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. I refuse to uh, change the product experience to be uh, inferior uh, just to get ship on time. So, it, so you have quality is not going to change. Um, and the date of shipping is not going to change because mm-hmm. we want all this momentum. The only thing that's left is scope. So, um, so the leverage point I've always used is how do we reduce this down to something that we can manageably get out? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and that's really been uh, enlightening with a lot of the teams that I've worked on, mm-hmm. that we can do less and uh, get it out faster, mm-hmm. which gives us an opportunity then to see it in action and learn from it and get that kind of continuous cycle going. And is, that sco- is, is the experience of, of somebody like you in getting that scope as tight as possible from the onset, or is or is it really the experiences in how to adaptively modify scope as things are kind of going up or down over the course of the project? It's a little of both. I think I have with experience now of doing this so many times, uh, an intuitive sense of where we should start. Like what, uh, I guess in the lean startup language, what would be the minimum viable thing to do? Mm-hmm. I get a sense of like, all right, I can, I think we can get there in this amount of time. Yeah. But then it's a daily process of adapting mm. um, and reevaluating. That's why I like to stand up so much because mm. then it doesn't surprise people. It's not like the boss goes away and comes back and says, mm. we're doing all this stuff differently. Mm. They get to see the decision-making happening all the time by going every day, how far did we get? Oh, that's a setback. All right, so we're going to have to change scope today to make sure we hit next week, Friday, or whatever it is. No, it sounds, I mean, it's fascinating. Google Analytics is, is a bit of a tricky one too because you're not only just dealing with uh, a customer that is technical or has technical needs, but you're looking at how to visualize data and how to like, because it was, it was, it still is one of the sort of infrastructure of the internet. And in it, when it first came out, it was like this amazing thing. I mean, it was like, there's nothing really like it beforehand. And showing that level of depth and complexity and how to train people. I mean, I don't even know how you would begin scope reduction on a project as massive and as ambitious as Google Analytics. Yeah, well, um, that was also 10 years ago, so I didn't have quite as much of this methodology kind of developed yet. It yeah. took us 14 months yeah. to before the, the very first thing we shipped. Um, Just into scoping and identifying. And the whole, yeah, from, from the day we got to Google until we shipped uh, Google Analytics was, yeah, over a year of uh, working on it every day. And um, uh, we had some... Uh, we had some guardrails on that in that there was a product named Urchin that Google had acquired that was the core of the technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had a sense of like, this, these are the capabilities of that thing. What capabilities do we think we should add? What should we get rid of? 
Um, and that was in conjunction with the urchin team. Yeah. So they were they were in fact the engineers. Yeah, they were the the, the sort of thirty person engineering team, and then we were the kind of five or six person product team really that built the whole new front end. And because that was a, an artificial integration, you know, being yeah. some some dudes that got acquired over here, some dudes that got acquired over here. How yeah. did you? You know, you weren't in charge of hiring these people. You weren't. How did you manage to sort of work together? Was there any issues there? Was there? Like yeah. So uh, it helped a lot that um, that Paul, the leader of that team, uh, and me, the leader of the other team, just got along really well, and we kind of made sure we got along really well and spent a lot of time together. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were uh, there were some, but honestly, there were some conflicts uh, between. Um, us trying to push too far and other engineers being maybe a little conservative about, about uh, what we could do. But it, I don't know, it didn't feel like a big deal. Um, I don't think most engineers have, uh, at that time at least, worked with a designer or a team of designers that are totally willing and able to compromise on any technical hurdles that we would come across because that compromise is just uh, an opportunity for, for us to look at the problem a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think you're right in that uh, a lot of designers will go off, design a beautiful picture of something and say, this is what you have to go build, go make it just like this. And I've never felt that way. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's always a back and forth and back and forth. Is there, is there something to be said around engineering as design? And is there a potential here for the, what is known as a separate entity as design to really be, become part of the engineering curriculum? Or vice versa. Or vice versa. Yeah. And, and you really don't have this sort of left brain, right brain looking thing that I think we're familiar with today. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that's uh, uh, that's absolutely the case. And I think the same in the, the way you slice up design, or rather development between like back-end engineering and database management and front-end, yeah. you know, the JavaScript and, and all of that, and DevOps. You think about that as in the same way as these are all very symbiotic with one another, right? Um, well, why design and research and user experience can't plug into that and be the same. Um, yeah, that's why I think it's um, uh, it can actually be incredibly beneficial to have somebody as the leader of the company with a background in design and understanding how to make products for people yeah. um, setting that whole agenda. Yeah. Um, Google now has, Google Ventures has a design team now. Right. Yeah, like, uh, a lot of the people that were on my team when I worked there. Burka and uh, Braden and... Braden and Jake and yeah, all you, of those. You know those guys? Yes, very well. Um, what what does that look like in terms of um, being in a venture fund? And we'll jump into True in a second. Sure. But what's it look like to have a, a design team within a venture fund? And what, what is the role of a design team in a venture fund? And how, how can you help when you're not as deeply sort of tied in as you and Urgent guys, right. like... You're, you are the responsible party as a designer. Like you were in Google Analytics yeah. at Urchin, whereas a design team within a venture fund is more of like sort of a nice luxury, but perhaps not owning the problem enough. And then just trying to understand. I agree. Yeah. Um, I think what they do is uh, at Google Ventures with the Sprint mm-hmm. methodology is fascinating and really, really powerful. Do you want um, a quick summary of the Sprint methodology for the listeners? Yeah, it's really it's a one week boot camp. Um, and they, they will have one of their portfolio companies come, uh, or they will go to the company and say, what is your hardest problem that you're, solving, that you're trying to figure out right now? It's generally some new set of features or something mm-hmm. that they want to build into the product. And they will spend a week going from, this is our idea of what we think the problem is, to testing a prototype with live humans in five days. 
And they literally, they have this, uh, Jake uh, and Daniel and Brayton, I think, all wrote a book on this now yeah. called Sprint, where it's like chapter one, Monday, chapter two, Tuesday. Yeah. Like, here are the things that you do each day. Um, so there's nothing bespoke about the methodology. Um, and they, they give the companies an, an insight into what real user-centered design looks like and high-speed development at the same time. Uh, in an attempt to solve one problem really well, really quickly, uh, as a as a way of teaching them how to fish, right, and like how to do that for themselves, so they can use the methodology over and over again. Um, so I don't think it's really like a consulting engagement so much as a week long learning experience for the mm. teams. But they've been so successful with it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, no, they um, they're they're great. Um, but how does that how does that play out in terms of when you're an investor? You're kind of investing in somebody's already sort of. I mean, you're you're hoping to invest in somebody's already figured that out. I mean, if if you're if you're having to come and solve that problem for them and give an insight that they didn't have before you invested. I mean, to some extent. Well, I'm not sure it's that different from what you do here at no, Seed Camp. But I got right? a bit controversial on my podcast. Yeah, no, I I, I think um, uh, yeah, no, I think you can. Um, uh, I don't know the the teams that come, especially very early stage. Yeah, uh, they have uh, strengths and weaknesses, um, and sometimes this idea, and, and certainly the idea of like prototyping and testing and doing like developing a good user test. That's a really specialized uh, activity. It's a specialized skill that not very many people have. Mm. Um, so whether they get it from the in-house team or whether you know, like True does focuses much more on the educational side of things rather than the doing it for the teams. Um, we do a thing called True University where we have a three-day conference uh, to teach a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, but it's not just on the product and design side, they'll be on the business side. Mm-hmm. And we'll have you know courses on how do you do a B-round, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that, capitalization and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I think there is there's some uh, there are some network effects that come out of the, uh, where you decide to take money from as a startup. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. And I, I guess one of the things that would be great is when there's an output from any one of these things, that that output that gets transferred over to the person who's on the board of that company or who's helping that company and so that there's an awareness of the outcome. And, and how do you guys how do you guys manage that? Well, how do you think that GV manages that? I have no idea. But like, how do you manage this sort of, look, this is a conclusion that came after a week. That means this is the implication, cash implication. This is the milestone product development implications. Yeah, I, don't, I honestly, I think they're just there to be helpful. Okay. Right. I think it's it's a little like getting them over a hurdle and showing them a new way of doing things and say, you know, um, they're so good at it that the yeah. teams that they work with are like, wow, that was fantastic. Thanks for the help. Now we'll go off and do it. I don't think they're I don't think they're feeding it back into of the teams that we have done sprints with. You know, have they hit their milestones? Or yeah. Anything like that. Yeah. Do you think that, again, back to that question about engineer plus designer merge together, I mean, yeah. do you think that the future of venture capital is is partners or perhaps platforms that are enabling this sort of flow where like you're, you know, like you're doing these things with entry university that sound like there's an output there, but th- there's almost always a relationship manager, call it board member, call it whatever yeah. you want. And that person either is cognizant of that and understands it deeply or is more of just sort of a, a steward of that. And I'm just wondering what do you think the evolution of venture capital is? For for some category of investments, I think having somebody with a background like mine or 
like what Irene Au does at Kostler, or John Meta does at um, Conrad Perkins. These are all other designers who mm-hmm. have now gone into venture capital. Uh, I think that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, not not for all investing. Um, I think it's got a lot more. There's a, a lot more leverage to it early on mm-hmm. when you're sh- helping an entrepreneur shape the culture of their company. I think if you were only di- if you're writing, you know, hundred million dollar checks to Uber and stuff like that, you're not. Yeah, you're probably not. right. You're not. Uh, hoping to influence them that much, mm-hmm. um, but it's also types of products and, uh, and things like that. We we at True do some investing in uh, biotech and digital medicine and, and stuff like that, where I don't feel like I can be too terribly helpful. Mm-hmm. And that like, that's science, right? And and perhaps someday there'll be a, a you know I'm a design partner. There might be a science partner or something like that. Yeah. We all have different specialties uh, and things like that. So, um, so I wouldn't say, yeah, all VCs need to have a designer on, uh, you know, as a, as a partner, uh, but it's certainly helping for some, for some companies, for some of our Which brings companies. me, I guess, to the next point, which is what is it that you're looking for in, in terms of companies? Because I know we, when we kicked off, I was mentioning to the, to our audience that you're not like most design partners where you're focusing mostly on portfolio support. You're also actively having a thematic view on investing yeah. associated with your background in, in design. Right. What does that look like? I mean, you know. Sure. So there's there's some uh, aspect of design leadership. Somebody, um, right. So ultimately we're looking for product market fit, mm-hmm. right? And uh, the product market fit comes from the set of things that we're going to build and the set of needs an audience has and, mm-hmm. and connecting those things together. That set of things we're going to build, who's deciding what that set is and how are they making those decisions? Mm-hmm. I find that somebody who is in a position of leadership and in, and in seed companies, that's one of the founders, or maybe two of them, or uh, we generally, two to four people are how big these companies are when we invest. Uh, some, somebody who's in a position of authority in the, in the startup uh, has the kinds of methodologies that I've been talking about in this podcast in their background. They would know uh, how to do a user-centered methodology for product development and design and, and things like that. I find that that companies with that competency early on um, to be a little less risky in finding product market fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not to say that just having a designer is a key to success, right? I think we've seen companies like RDO, which was perhaps the, the best design music service of all the ones that are out there, didn't matter, right? Um, the problems that we see with Nest, now that it's at uh, Alphabet, mm-hmm. there's a design-driven company that um, has some serious, it feels like, fundamental problems with it right now. Uh, so it's not a silver bullet, uh, but I do find that all things being equal, if you do have a, a designer at the seat of the table, at the foundation of the company, um, uh, it de-risks the investment. Mm. Yeah, I know that, that makes sense. And, and you know, it's, it's definitely something that for, for some of the companies that we invest in, especially consumer-facing ones, it, it's a huge value add. Um, and I guess that brings me back to a question I left lingering from a little earlier, which was around what should one expect from the board member who's a design partner in terms of pushing or pulling and helping that company, not just through like, here's something I did with you and this is the output of it, right. but in, in holding them accountable for that and, right. and in a way that is different than, let's say, how an accountant. Right. So, yeah, would. at some level, if I'm uh, on the board of a company, I have a... Uh, fiduciary responsibility. Yeah. So that means the plan that we approved at the last meeting, are you on plan, are you yeah. on target, and, and stuff like that. So there's uh, the mechanics of that. Yeah. Um, 
but having uh, having someone like me on the board also gives an opportunity to uh, talk about roadmaps and future projects and how they're going to achieve that and why and how they're making those decisions in a way that if you had a bunch of bankers around the table, you're not going to get the same kind of feedback. So uh, I think board meetings can be really productive strategic sessions with uh, a set of experienced people and a, and a couple of founders. Um, they don't just have to be the sort of uh, mechanistic going through the numbers and looking at the balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the best board of meetings that I go to, I get all of the financial stuff the week ahead of time, kind of parse through it, see if we have any questions, spend 30 minutes on those questions at the beginning of the board meeting. And then a couple more hours strategically figuring out where to go, what's next, what's working, what's not working. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, having a couple decades of experience developing products and building large scale products goes a long way in those strategic conversations. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So for those of you that have really enjoyed um, this chat, and I know I have, um, and I'm looking forward to what I'm about to share with you guys, is Jeff is launching his own podcast. Now, it's going to be on Relay FM. Relay FM. And yeah. uh, it's going to be called Presentable. Um, and it's going to focus on the design and development of the products we use every day. But maybe you can give us a little bit of a preview of kind of like the kinds of people you want to be interviewing. Maybe it's a good opportunity to also promote of what it is that you, you want to be talking about and sort of the, the kind of vision for the podcast. Yeah, sure. Thanks for bringing that up. It's uh, The desire was to be less uh, of an interview show and more topical, what's happening right now. So uh, we recorded an episode this week uh, with Chris Messina, who is now at Uber. Actually, he's probably, uh, to his chagrin, best known as the, uh, the guy who coined the hashtag on Twitter. Uh, but Chris is somebody who has thought a lot about conversational user interfaces and chatbots and things like that, which I find very interesting as a almost an alternative to GUIs and things like that. So we talked about that for an hour. Um, I, I spent some time in a previous episode talking to Erica Hall from Yule Design about how teams function and how the culture of teams makes better products and yeah. how you can cultivate culture. Um, uh, and so I just kind of look in the news every couple weeks and say, what's going on? What are people thinking about? How does that relate to how we build our products? And who would be the best person to talk to me about that? Um, and I go find somebody from the industry who knows something about that. Uh, and we have a chat. So it's, uh, it's really focused on people who are trying to build products and make them better, uh, whether designers or developers or product managers, and, um, and really kind of figure out what's going on, the wor- going on in the world these days uh, and how it affects what they're doing in their jobs. Wow. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing the first few episodes. What, any launch date that you can, you can let us know? Uh, a couple of weeks from, how we're, uh, yeah, <laughs> from, from where we're recording now. So it should be really soon. At, really uh, soon. Presentable. Or sorry, it's at uh, relay.fm slash presentable. Yeah. Relay.fm. All right. Stay posted for that. And with that, guys, thanks for joining us. And until next time. Bye.